We had gotten this call from the peripheral hospital. They were in Vancouver Island. The patient in this case is a 73-year-old woman who was previously healthy and not on any medications. She developed exertional shortness of breath for a few months, which prompted her to visit emergency room. That's Dr. Dania Al-Nujaidi and Dr. Angela Hu. They are both rheumatology fellows at the University of British Columbia and our guests on Around the Room. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Daniel Ennis, and as usual, I'm joined by my co-host and Jedi Master, Dr. Janet Pope. Welcome, Janet. Hi, welcome, everybody. I'm looking forward to being stumped. (laughs) Me too, as always. Uh, So today, we're doing the second special episode that we're calling Clinical Pearls and Medical Mysteries, where a colleague brings us a challenging medical case, and we, and by that I mean mostly Janet, will attempt to come up with the diagnosis, and I will be Robin to her Batman in that process. Before we get to our guests, I want to announce some upcoming episodes on a whole bunch of interesting topics, including Sjogren's disease. We're doing a French episode on myositis, more clinical pearls and medical mysteries episodes. And we would love to hear from you folks if you have other episodes that you're interested in hearing. If you have questions you would like answered by the experts, please contact us through the CRA Twitter account at CRASCRroom or by email info at room.ca. And for future Clinical Pearls episodes, please get in touch if you have challenging cases you want to present on the podcast. So now on to our show and our guests. Angela Hu is finishing her final year of Rheumatology Fellowship at UBC. She is from Vancouver and completed medical school at McMaster and internal medicine training in Toronto. She has an interest in lupus and will be pursuing an additional fellowship in this. Dania Al-Nujaidi is also in the final year of Rheumatology Fellowship at UBC. She completed medical school and internal medicine board at IAU in Saudi Arabia. Angela and Dania, welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you. It's great to see you both. And so we're, we're really excited about the podcast. So um, I think we, we've done all the housekeeping that we need to. I'd love to hand over to you two to tell us about this interesting case you have. Okay, sounds good. This is Dania. So the patient in this case is a 73-year-old woman who was previously healthy and not on any medications. She was completely independent with her ADL and IADL. She developed exertional shortness of breath for a few months, which prompted her to visit emergency room. It was discovered that she had bilateral pleural effusion. Pleurodesis was done and the result came back exudative, negative cultures, and cytology. Unfortunately, she had another two episodes of pleural effusions over a five-month period, and each time, pleurodesis will be done with the same results, exudative effusion, and her previous cultures were also sent like for TB, which also came back negative. She also underwent myocardial perfusion scan, um, CT chest, abdu pelvis, and mammogram to look for an underlying malignancy, and all those tests came back negative as well. So at that point in time, during her third episode of pleural effusion, rheumatology team received a race call. They were asked if there is any underlying rheumatological disease that can explain her recurrent pleural effusions and whether it's okay to prescribe for her a trial of prednisone. So I think, um, first of all, 73 isn't the demographic that we're often thinking about of uh, things such as new SLE as a, for instance, even though that can occur, rheumatoid arthritis will rarely present as serositis. This is strange in that it keeps recurring and it is exudative. So it's not heart failure or a weird transudate for another reason. And it sounds like all the appropriate workup of pan scan for malignancy, uh, cultures um, done more than once, all being negative. So it does make you think that it could be in our wheelhouse. Um, obviously, usually the consult is begotten by things like ANAs and RFs and stuff like that. So you do wonder, but there's a very broad differential, including multiple diseases that wouldn't be rheumatologic. But since it is a mystery case in room, I'm going to probably stick to the fact that it could be something to do with what we see. Daniel, what do you think? Batman, Batman, I'm Batman. Robin, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think that I think that's just right, right? Like you. You start with the common stuff that causes pleural effusion. They've kind of, they've begun some cardiac workup to roll that out, though 
it seems like a little bit half-hearted because it's an exudative effusion. So they are really looking for other kind of more sinister causes um, than than just heart failure. Um, and and I think that in a 73-year-old, I, I think they probably had the same thought, especially since they're sending cytology a couple of times and they keep retapping it with the same result. I think they're thinking about malignancy, uh, right? And and the the pan scanning is appropriate and and mammograms appropriate. You know, what, one thing that I wonder about more in like our myositis patients where we are like we're pretty sure that there's an underlying malignancy. In these cases is the CT, you know, chest abdopelvis is that sufficient um to look for things like endometrial cancer, uterine cancers um that you know are heart that we don't screen for uh, particularly well um but maybe kind of, of of more importance than like a 73 year old woman. Uh, I, I'm curious, Janet, if you have a thought on that, like in dermatomyositis, do you stop at the CT chest abdopelvis or do you do an ultrasound of the pelvis or an MRI of the pelvis or, or, you know, do you ask OB um, how to properly screen for, you know, gynecologic malignancies? What's your approach there? Right. So I think it really depends on what you think the pretest likelihood is. So we're always worried if, say, she had dysfunctional, well, all uterine bleeding at 73 is dysfunctional. But if she had spotting, if she had a bulky uh, uterus, did she have her PAPs? Because at a certain age, PAPs stop. And I think that might be around 70. So we're mm-hmm. PAPs normal until then. Um, there's, uh, peritoneal, um, changes of cancer that you can't really pick up on a pan scan. Of course she did have her mammogram because the pan scan is not going to pick that up. Um, so I think it depends on the pretest likelihood. I mean, if she's not weak and she doesn't have a dermato picture and there's no weight loss, then I think dermatomyositis presenting as bilateral recurrent pleural effusions would be pretty darn rare. I would put things higher, um, Rheumatoid arthritis is still there, and because of the age of onset, not unheard of for RA, certainly at that age. It's not rare. It's not common. Uh, SLE, um, we try to think of other things like vasculitis. That would be an unusual presentation. It doesn't appear that under the pleural fusions, there's um, ILD, although we you know, unless if there's something that's a bit subclinical because it sounds like CT chest, abdomen and pelvis are normal. Um, Mm -hmm. Ovarian cancer can certainly be perineoplastic things happening. But again, usually there's some hints, fluid in the abdomen, maybe an ovary having an enlargement. So I'm just sort of saying, well, we would want, especially when it's a room consult, we would want a little bit of serology, I think, to help perhaps lead us in the right direction, but perhaps not. Yeah. And so you feel like this is unlike when someone just has some joint pain and nothing else, sending a bunch of serology in that setting is more likely to give you um, kind of like red herrings and send you in the wrong direction. In this setting, it actually might start to focus um, what you're looking for and kind of where else to look. Is that is that fair? I, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So maybe we'll hand it back over to Danya. So we want we want some serologies. <laughs> we want to go on a, a, a little bit of a fishing expedition because we're looking to hone, hone things down a little bit. Yeah. So her blood counts, CBC came back normal, but her differential showed lymphopenia of 0.4. She did have normal creatinine, EGFR, normal liver enzymes. Serology, she had highly positive ANA with a titer of 1 to 640. Um, it has it had a pattern of nucleolar and fine speckled. Her ENA was um, borderline for RMP and SSA, and she had high positive rheumatoid factor of 75.5. Her ANCA and POPR3 both are negative, and her DSDNA was negative. And she also had an elevated CRP of 15.3. And do we have some compliments to complement what you told us? Not at the point when we received the race call. Okay. And and how about a CCP after that rheumatoid factor? I think it was done later on. It was negative. Ah, okay. All right. So, I mean, we, we make a diagnosis. We have a, a structure, a framework of looking at classification criteria, but classification criteria and making a clinical diagnosis mostly overlap, but don't necessarily have to. So we have recurrent, so serositis, recurrent bilateral pleural effusions, lymphopenia, 
positive AMA. And that's where we're at. And then we have some interesting antibodies. So RNP can go with all sorts of connective tissue disease. SSA is anti-Rho, which would be um, something with the RNP that I would take seriously as thinking about things like SLE. Interestingly, nucleolar ANA, we think of that in some patients with diffuse cutaneous systemic sclerosis, which could give serositis, unlikely way to present. But um, nucleolar can be in uh, SLE and myositis, etc. Um, but the DFS, so the dense fine speckled or at least fine speckled, which I assume is dense fine speckled, that's supposed to be in the literature, which I don't believe it, but it's supposed to be, it rules out lupus. So if you're thinking about lupus and your DFS, you're supposed to say, no, it's not lupus. In reality, I hate DFS. I think it has... Um, a negative predictive value that's not as high as previously reported. Um, the other thing is I would be interested in a CK, but again, myositis presenting like this could be the case, but I think SLE would be higher. Does she meet criteria for SLE? No, but I'd say she's a lupus suspect. Um, so uh, Daniel, is that your line of thinking or would you expand more broadly? Yeah, absolutely. Like, and, and I'm, I'm going to throw out like, you know, I'm curious what you think about also checking antiphospholipids, not that this person meets antiphospholipid syndrome, but because we're trying to see which kind of type of connective tissue disease she fits into best. And the serology slants towards, you know, a lupus-like or undifferentiated connective tissue disease, the rheumatoid factor being there, like you said, serositis can be a presenting uh, feature of of um, rheumatoid. So, um, you know, if she had antiphospholipid antibodies, would that sway the way that you would describe the like the, the way that you would describe the case? Given that we have heard no history that she's had recurrent pregnancy losses, blood clots of any kind, like is there value in that, or it's it's actually just it's noise? I think I'd save your money. But that's my my impression because the pretest likelihood, what if it's borderline? What if her PTT is just minimally elevated by one second? You're going to go, mm -hmm. well, it's still kind of normal. So I wouldn't mm -hmm. have thought of doing it, but that's why I did ask about compliments. And of course, the ANCAs to round it all off, the CCP that you asked for, of course, you're not going to get that kind of duration of recurrent. It was already three months onset and then it had recurred over and over. We don't think that this is a post-infectious thing. It's not like, oh, she had COVID or um, pneumonia and has a paranemonic bilateral effusion, uncommon, just it's going on too long. So although there are, there is other serology and things we could do, some of these extended patterns of ENA that are looking myositis specific, I'm not getting that kind of clinical presentation. And let's be honest, at this point, I mean, someone's already probably tried to give her something. We're probably going to end up giving her more prednisone because the pleurodesis didn't work. So prednisone or more prednisone is probably what she's going to get from me with a probable CTD, highly likely, but not necessarily yet SLE. So maybe an undifferentiated connective tissue disease in the SLE-like category. I think that's like just how I would have labeled this if like, cause at the end of my notes, I like, I, I do put my money down on something, but unless I am certain that that's the label for it, I usually put likely or probable. So, so here I'd put probable undifferentiated connective tissue disease. And, uh, that kind of, I think for me, at least helps frame my decisions around the treatment algorithm that I follow. Um, so I, I think, I think we, uh, I think we agree there. All right. So, and and then for treatment, you're interested in, let's say they haven't had treatment yet. Janet, you would go with some kind of course of steroids or DMARDs or what, like what's going to be right, your approach right, here? Right. And just before I answer that, uh, Daniel slash Robin, I fully yeah. agree in the Batman Robin trio that our duo, the, the, tra the trainees are part of our trio, but there's four <laughs> yeah. of us. So I, I can't count either. But I really like the idea, so really to, to make and validate and uh, emphasize that point, is that when we're not sure, we're way better saying probable or possible or I suspect, because what happens as other people read those notes, if she comes back into hospital and things 
things like that. If we say this is a slam dunk, then we do get this sort of blinders on and this diagnostic uh, uh, thinking that might over time not be correct. So with that in mind, I'd give hydroxychloroquine. Um, I would think um, possibly of an NSAID for pain, but I try to avoid it. And I think the SEDS, the steroids will probably help the pain as well and the dyspnea. So I would think if there's this recurrent of moderate, first of all, I don't know why the pleurodesis doesn't work. Get a new respirologist to put a lot of talc in there or something. <laughs> just getting her tap to just seal it up. That would make her life better. But I would probably think two things. So maybe depending maybe around 20 milligrams of prednisone a day with the hydroxychloroquine that will take two to six weeks to uh, kick in. So the prednisone will be faster. Think should, could she really get a proper pleurodesis then not just a, a drain, et cetera. And looking at um, if this continues on, that's where I'd think of azathioprine or mycophenolate mofetil. I think right now, although it's been very irksome, she could do super well over time with um, lowering prednisone as the hydroxychloroquine kicks in and seeing if she recurs. And also looking for things like a pericardial effusion. Bilateral isolated pleural effusions, no serositis, no pericardial effusion, absolutely well described in connective tissue diseases, but often there's a trivial pericardial effusion that goes with it. So just being cognizant that I want to make sure we are barking up the right tree, but I still feel that would be the way to go. We'll be back to Around the Room in a minute after this brief message from the Canadian Rheumatology Association. The CRA wants to invite you to visit their website, room.ca, to participate in accredited virtual care modules. These are designed specifically for rheumatologists to learn and practice a standardized approach to virtual care. These resources are available exclusively to CRA members and invited guests. Access to the site is password protected. To get your password, please contact info at room.ca. This learning program is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Novartis. An independent CRA scientific planning committee was responsible for the scientific integrity, objectivity, and balance of this content. And now, back to the podcast. All right, so maybe we'll turn it back over to our guests. What uh, what did the treating team do? This is Angela. Yeah, so at this point, as mentioned, we had gotten this call from the peripheral hospital. Um, they were in Vancouver Island. And so the rheumatology team in Vancouver had been a little bit equivocal, but it was left essentially as that uh, trial of prednisone would not be unreasonable, given that all the other infectious and malignancy workup at this point had been negative. So ultimately, her treating physician had decided to uh, go ahead with that prednisone trial and was started on prednisone 25 milligrams with a 5 milligram every two-week taper essentially for a presumed autoimmune serositis. And it was prednisone monotherapy. She, she wasn't started on additional therapy at that point. So afterwards, at around two weeks after starting the prednisone, while she was on 20 milligrams at that point, uh, she represented to hospital with increased shortness of breath. And in the emergency room, she was uh, requiring four liters of oxygen to maintain her oxygen saturation. And she was noted to be mildly hypertensive with a blood pressure of 158 over 95. And her chest x-ray done in the hospital, again, showed moderate to large bilateral pleural effusions. Yikes. Okay, so we, we tried a treatment, and very quickly after starting treatment, things get worse. And I think in those circumstances, at least my brain would go to, was the treatment wrong or even you know, deleterious, like it actually made whatever it was, was, was underlying things worse, like it was TB, or it was some kind of infection that we have made worse? Or was this person kind of on the upswing anyways, and we have just kind of missed with our treatment, we, we were a little bit too late, and this was about to happen. And it is coincidental. Um, was there, you know, in the first two weeks, or in the first week there, like, did she have any improvement on the prednisone? She had some mild improvement uh, and then subsequently had worsened with, uh, I guess, a fairly rapid deterioration over that subsequent week. Hmm. 
What do you think, Janet? What would be going through your head? Right. So a couple of things that seems like I'm we, we might not be on the right diagnosis. I assume that these weren't bloody taps because malignancy and TB, things like that, may be hemorrhagic, the exudate, but they it's usually grossly not like it's cloudy, but you can usually see red cells. Uh, even clinically, it might look... Uh, uh, blood tinted or uh, stained, hemocytorin stained. So I also don't like the idea of the blood pressure because she was given glucocorticoids, um, 25, I guess 20. So the same idea, she's down to 20. And she is a nucleolar ANA. RNP can, of course, go with mixed connective tissue, tissue disease, but I'm hoping she's not a... Um, uh, CTD with some kind of systemic sclerosis overlap. So at this point in time, first of all, uh, she needs these pleural um, effusions dealt with better. So she probably needs chest tubes or something. And, and since when she's this bad right now on four liters, they might not pleurodes or they might be worried that if there's um, an ill effect, a pneumor or something, she wouldn't be able to tolerate it necessarily at this point. But I think she needs a ch chest tubes to drain. Um, I'm hoping that you would think now, do we do flow cytometry? Is this some kind of lymphoproliferative? You can do a serum SPAP, not thinking she has myeloma, but wondering, is this like um, a lymph lymphomatous thing or something? It would be pretty weird, though, to have isolated pleural effusions with nothing else that's been found yet uh, from lymphoma. Not unheard of, but pretty rare. Um, and as a teaching point, totally unrelated to this, but we all would remember a 73-year-old that might need long-term steroids before we realized they weren't working, that we'd consider protecting our bones or thinking about it. So that's just more a teaching point. So right now, I think I'm saying, yikes. So we need to have a look. Does she have Raynaud's? Does she have uh, dilated capillaries at the nail fold? Does she have puffy fingers? Has the skin changed? Those sorts of things. Is there dysphagia and GERD? And um, uh, I'm I'm pretty concerned because four liters large effusions. She's a little bit unstable now. And and like I think uh, boiling down what you know internal medicine when they admit the patient is is really asking us is some sometimes it, like it kind of comes down to does this person need more steroids, the same amount of steroids, or less steroids? And do you like have an idea of what you would want to do at this stage? Like, do you think that like, oh, geez, the steroids bad for you, we got to taper off quickly? Or would you, you know, where would you go with that? What do you think? So a couple of things, I assume she was adherent, probably someone checked the pharmacy records that she filled the pred because there could have been misunderstanding deliberate like non-adherence or um, you know by accident but I'll just assume she took them so depending on what she looked like this is where the physical is going to um, override the current antibodies if she doesn't look like a systemic sclerosis overlap I am going to really watch that blood pressure carefully and wonder was it just not enough and 25 is a good amount and um, at this at the CRA there was a, a debate or a contemporary controversy on in lupus pulsing with solumedrol for things like um, GN and saying um, it, some of the data boil down to we just do it anecdotally but that um, a gram IV times three days is a little bit um, traditional but not necessarily needed so am I going to go to 60 or 100 milligrams IV daily of solumedrol but the blood pressure and the nucleolar ANA it's it's in the back of my brain that is she going to need an ACE inhibitor? So I would do an LD, but an LD is non-specific, but it's really high. That certainly would, what you'd wonder about things like um, renal crisis, you can do, is there intravascular hemolysis? So you can look for on a peripheral smear changes of red blood cells busting apart, but not seeing schistocytes um, and having a moderate elevation of LD doesn't really tell you everything. And we would look at the urine. Is there um myoglobin urea, so a positive dip with no red cells when you're looking. Is there um, evidence of uh, proteinuria now? So it's it's that nuclear nucleolar ANA having been given PRED and the blood pressure that I'm just kind of saying, whoa, maybe we have to recognize a concomitant problem if she's one of these undifferentiated connective tissue disease people wondering is is um, she kind of pointing towards something like that? So I think I need mm -hmm. the physical exam when they when the consult service are. 
All right, yeah. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, what did you guys find? For sure. So at this point, we didn't have a bunch of additional information about the physical examination since she was still on Vancouver Island. And to the internist uh, who was treating her there, they commented that the physical exam was overall unremarkable. They did give us some additional lab work that she had there, and that had included a leukocytosis with a white cell count of 23 and predominantly neutrophils, and she had, again, a lymphopenia of 0.3. She also had a thrombocytopenia uh, with platelet count of 84, and her hemoglobin was normal at 123. She had a modestly elevated CK at 840, a troponin of 165. BNP was quite elevated at 11,000, and her creatinine had risen to 200, and at baseline it was previously normal. In addition to that, at this point they had... And sorry, I was just going to say, I didn't catch the platelet count. 83. 83, okay. Keep going, I got the rest. Perfect. So at this point we had gotten some additional serology again, and the complements were now done, uh, and C3 was low at 0.52. C4 was also low at 0.06. Her haptoglobin was undetectable. LDH was markedly elevated at greater than 1,200. And uh, additionally, cryoglobulins were done, which were negative. And a urinalysis had shown one gram of protein with three to 10 RBCs as well, and a urine ACR of 93. And she also had a peripheral blood smear that was done, which had shown moderate to severe thrombocytopenia, as well as a few schistocytes. And overall, the, it was favored to be an evolving microangiopathic hemolysis picture or MAHA. Oof. Yeah, okay, so Janet, you, Janet, you, you sniffed right. it out. You, yeah, I did. See, well, it's a nucleolar. The DFS is supposed to rule out lupus, which, of course, it doesn't. But, um, well, that nucleolar pattern does sort of highlight that, you know, the RMP, she could go in any direction. So, number one, she has to get off the island. Like, she really needs uh, tertiary care. She's very sick. Uh, number two, it is rare in systemic sclerosis, including renal crisis, to not have a pericardial effusion, but it could be trivial, so you don't have to have one. The thinking in renal crisis is that as the blood pressure goes up, you probably don't drain from your veins of the pericardium because the whole, all the pressures are going up. So I would say she needs to start the ACE of choice, always an ACE, not an ARB. You can traditionally use uh, Captopril, but Enalapril, whatever ACE you want, and you want to maximize the dose on day one. So basically, we're not worried about her blood pressure crashing because she's going to have an IV in and you can give her normal saline and things like that. So I would start on, if it was Captopril, um, you can start low, 6.25 milligrams, but in an hour, if her blood pressure is not going in the right direction, you can double and you can maximize. So Captopril has a huge dose range, surprisingly, more than I think 150 milligrams a day, but I always have to look it up. You could use enalapril, 5 milligrams BID, and quickly doubling. So it's not BID doubling each day. You take it about every hour and see. The prognosis with the creatinine being 200 is poor. Low complements can occur in renal crisis, but not so common. But I think her urinalysis and the high LD uh, would be more compatible with renal crisis. But she certainly could be an overlap. And um, I, I still don't know why the pleural effusions are going crazy at this time. I like that someone did cryos because I kind of forgot about that at the beginning. So that was nice that they did it for us. Um, so I think at this point in time, she does need to get shipped over. They should start their ACE inhibitor right away. They should target that her blood pressure is normal by the end of today. So you're going to, it's not like malignant hypertension where you've had hypertension and now it goes up. So you don't want to lower it too quickly. Nephrologists sometimes forget that, oh, this person's blood pressure, you know, two weeks ago might've been 90 over 60 or 120 over, um, you know, 72, things like that. So you want her blood pressure back to normal ASAP. The creatinine's a worry. The LD, really high, would go with it. But she's a mixed picture. Her CK's up. And so we don't know what it was before, but I wonder if she really is features of lupus, features of systemic sclerosis, and features of myositis. Now, a CK can go up in scleroderma. It's usually bad news. Tropes often go up when the CK is high enough, so it's not specific. And um, you can do a ratio of various tropes and things. But um, I think that 
in my hands, I would like to have a look at her, but you know, because she's distant, I would wonder about cyclophosphamide. It would make me feel better. What am I treating? I'm treating the fact that she has progressive disease and that some of it could potentially be treatable. The elevated CK, we got to get the prednisone off. So I'd want to give her something because cyclo can be on board for a while. The white count has shifted possibly from the 25 and now 20 of pred to 23,000. We're wondering again about now a new super infection and the um, lymphopenia is going with some features of lupus. So she's got lots of CTD issues, but number one, renal crisis with the renal impairment is get that blood pressure down fast. Number two, she's got a lot of activity going on with the CK, low complements, etc. So I would give her cyclo. I think on the other side, they might hesitate. And then you might say, well, let's start mycophenolate mofetil, um, either Celsept, MMF, or my Fortic. And maybe then you just start low 500 milligrams twice a day. If I gave cyclo, I'd give 500 milligrams in case she crashes her accounts because you can give another 500 tomorrow or in two weeks because she won't crash your counts on day one. Low platelets with the renal crisis are always a worry, um, but low platelets can also be this sort of uh, lupus, other CTD overlap stuff. So Daniel, I've left a lot of um, possibilities. Um, where do you <laughs> think you'd go now? Um, well, I, I really do like your your bold approach with the cyclophosphamide early on, not that you're using that to treat renal crisis, which is the putative diagnosis here, you know, what troubles, so, so kind of two things. One, it troubles me that she doesn't have the skin involvement that most systemic sclerosis has. So one question for you is how many patients with scleroderma have scleroderma, CNA, scleroderma? Like what, what is the likelihood of that? Right. So and then a uh, second question after. Okay. So renal crisis can present as your first feature but I'm not at all certain that she doesn't have dilated capillaries and puffy fingers because this is not something common for a general internist to see. You know, a lot of general right. internists have have never seen renal crisis and maybe haven't seen an early diffuse. Anyone can diagnose that's medical when they have claw deformities like um, claw hands and things. So uh, I'm not convinced. I would probably ask the general internist, can you send some pictures of her hands and get a close up with because iPhones can send good pictures. So that might be helpful, but that's why we want to have a look. So I'm not, when they say it's not there, that means it might or might not be there is how I would look <laughs> at enough. it. Because, right? This is subtle. But you don't have to come in with rapidly progressive skin and tendon friction rubs. You can present with renal crisis. But to not have Raynaud's would be extremely uncommon at this phase if you're presenting with renal crisis. Almost all mm-hmm. of them have started Raynaud's within the last uh, many weeks or a couple months, not years before, like limited, but recent onset. But I have seen a renal crisis patient where they didn't get Raynaud's or any skin changes till about a month after because they did live through their renal crisis. I see. Yeah. I, and and like to that end, one I, like another diagnosis that can cause microangiopathy is lupus. And that is also on our list. So I think at the moment, the it is putative that it is scleroderma renal crisis and I think for this type of patient, I actually do think that, a, you know, there, there really is a, um, a conversation to be had about renal biopsy to clarify the precise pathology that's going on there. The, the other question I had for you was about once, let's say this is renal crisis, once it's already happened, does it still matter uh, about the prednisone? Because there are other concerning features of the case that typically we would use lots of prednisone for the myositis, maybe this, you know, the cytopenias aren't too bad, but there are pieces of the story that could potentially improve with more steroids, um, uh, the serositis. Are, is it okay, you know, do we need to reduce the prednisone because that's an ongoing stimulant of the scleroderma renal crisis? Or is it the sort of situation where, eh, you've already set it off, it's too late, the scler- the renal crisis is going to take its own natural history, and now you do what you need to do with the prednisone. Can you, can you kind of walk me through that? Right. So first of all, I'm talking about no data now when I talk. So this is my sure. opinion. <laughs> so um, we know steroids increase the risk, particularly higher dose. 
Um, since her blood pressure, we believe is newly up and all these other things are going on. The creatinine is newly up. I would stop the steroids. I don't think we have to wean them either because it's just so recent. And that's why I was going for an immune suppressive because anything like that will take time to kick in. And why do I say that? So it's kind of like I'm, I'm going by data free. Um, we don't have data that says if you're on steroids, if you stop them versus continue, is there a change in morbidity or mortality? But this is a condition with a very high mortality. And because I would consider something else and, you know, after cyclo, I still want to see her before I say, oh, let's just give her retox. I want to do cultures because her white counts up, but I would stop the steroids knowing that I've got a back pocket kind of treatment. When it comes to renal biopsy, number one, you don't want it to delay that ACE inhibitor. So lots of times nephros saying as though this is a carte blanche patient, whereas we know this person had serositis. She's had ongoing lymphopenia. We know that she's some one of our diseases, most likely by other things being ruled out, probably a series of our kinds of diseases. So a renal biopsy is not as dangerous, but don't hold treatment, get the ACE going. It's not as dangerous with a blood pressure of 150 over 95. But if they recheck her blood pressure and it's 220 over 110, um, they can bleed. And what's happening, the kidneys really clamp down. But there's that kind of, if you remember, onion skinning, they can be quite friable. So I tend not to do a renal biopsy. We do, we, we sort of think we have a liquid biopsy and that we have um, the, we're looking at protein and blood in the urine. And I think an LD greater than 1200 is um, making me really think in that direction. And as mm -hmm. I say, I, I bet you she's got some dilated capillaries, but that doesn't mean she does. I'm just making a, an educated guess from the renal crises patients I've seen. <laughs> so we can usually do a, a detective work and see. So those are the things I think. So right now I'd say, well, get her, like get the ACE going, get her transferred as soon as possible, stop the steroids and renal biopsy can be discussed later. Um, with that low platelets, that's not dangerous at 83, but those platelets in two days could be 43, by the way. And then you made a really good point. What about things like TTP? And sometimes it is tough to know, is this microangiopathic change for other reasons that might be treated differently? You know, things like there's certain drugs and also things like um, plasmapheresis might be considered. So you want to make sure you have the right diagnosis, but withholding the ACE without a diagnosis now, I think is the wrong treatment. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, uh, what did, what did you folks do? Yeah, so the, the team on the island, they were still keeping a pretty broad differential. So they had treated her with uh, some antibiotics, ceftriaxone, Lasix, and they had also continued the prednisone at that point. But they did discuss the case further with the team in Vancouver, and she was uh, transferred subsequently to Vancouver General Hospital. So at this point, finally, the rheumatology team was able to see her in hospital and in terms of some further details that she endorsed to the team, uh, so she did actually have Raynaud's about five months before all the pleural effusions Bingo. had started. She had reported some, some arthralgias of, of the PIPs, and she'd also unintentionally lost about 30 pounds over the course of four months. Uh, apart from that, the, the review systems was unremarkable. And then in terms of the physical examination, so... At that point, her blood pressure was a little better, 133 over 86. She was noted to have some very mild perioral tightening and furrowing with limited oral opening to about two fingers. Apart from that, in terms of her hands, so she had very subtle skin thickening on her fingers, distal to the MCPs, but apart from that, didn't have thickening uh, elsewhere. And then she did have, interestingly, on capillaroscopy, as Dr. Pope has uh, astutely uh, noted in advance, capillary loop dropouts, microhemorrhages, and telangiectasias, casias, and there was some diffuse periuncal erythema as well. And otherwise, uh, she didn't have any overt synovitis, and her muscle strength testing was intact on exam. Couple couple things. I hope she did come over with the ACE on board. So we'll just say that the ACE treated her blood pressure. Um, that's why you, you can't always believe the other person on the end of the call because we only see what we see, right? If you're not, if you don't have a trained eye and you're not thinking it, it is difficult. So there's never any blame or anything like that, but she's probably going to be diffuse over time, even though right now it'd be a bit on face and fingers, not proximal. Although I can always find something somewhere, like maybe on their <laughs> balls or somewhere. I can usually find something somewhere. Um, Two points before we get on this weight loss, because that's a real concern. So the first point is that 
If you have renal crisis, you can be wet but dry. So by that, I mean you can have increased total body fluid, but you're not perfusing your kidneys because everything's all clamped down. That's why you're shearing little red cells. They're pretty small and you're shearing them. So sometimes um, I, I will tolerate that they have pitting edema um, and will will still run saline to just kind of tissue like expand blood vessels that this is the world according to my made up approach I don't like in the literature I don't think it tells us that but I'm a little bit concerned about Lasix because if we dry her out too much that creatinine which we didn't hear the newest one but it could be 300 you can only go up so much creatinine per day so if her creatinine say was 80 and then it's 200 we don't know if she's going to be 300 then 380 then 480 right over the next few days so that is a concern i do wonder if that she now has a pericardial effusion because they usually do so that's just a couple things and then um the ck i mean you can have scleroderma myopathy um it, the ck is not usually that high it's reassuring that she's currently not weak if this is all pericardial, like a, um, not, sorry, not pericardial, myocardial, that's a bad sign. But that weight loss, because that's what I want to get into talking about next, um, it's like, show me the cancer. She's 73, so a bit older. She's had weight loss. Um, the pleural effusions never settled down. Like they, it's so, um, I do wonder. So, the usual cancer and scleroderma renal crisis, if this is a perineoplastic problem, which it still might be, who knows? Um, the usual cancer is an adenocarcinoma. Has it been reported with lymphoproliferative? Yes, but very uncommon. Why adeno? That tissue can make antibodies and they've stained um, in specimens such as at Hopkins. They have stained the adeno CAs that were perineoplastic with uh, scleroderma involvement and found, huh, RNA polymerase 3 in the stain of the cancer tissue. So sort of like the putative, the smoking gun has been found. So I'm wondering if it's perineoplastic. I still think she needs cyclo. But if you want to give her rituximab, you can. I think she needs repeat cultures because she's been sick now for a while with a bunch of prednisone. But I'm looking, show me the cancer. So now we have to go more broadly. And she could get a PET scan if you're able to do it. Because PET scans normal will rule out positive it doesn't rule it in because she can have inflammation around those pleural effusions she can have other things going on and i'd probably get the cytology because she probably had large amount of pleural fluid that's you know kept in the path lab from the several drainages i'd probably get um, someone to do flow on it they can do um, serum like a blood cell flow as well red cell circulating flow but i would also say um can we have another look for cytology is there a small adeno that was missed on the uh, lung as a for instance um, does a mammogram look well enough? Um, now you're say, thinking about, you know, endometrial, ovarian, not so much cervix for this. So you got to, we got to be a bit, we got to fish a bit more. So those are the, the things I'm thinking about now. Great. I, you know, every time we review a case together, I feel like a, I'm not a, a staff, but I'm, I'm still a, a med student. So <laughs> thanks for running us through that. Not at all, but that's, um, you know, this is uncommon. We actually asked at the Canadian Rheumatology Association, our workshop in scleroderma was today. And mm -hmm. I asked how many people in the room had seen renal crisis, and it was only about 10%. So, you know, this is not, it, it's a, we're talking a rare condition with a very uncommon complication for most of you to have seen. So, no, mm -hmm. I think, I think everybody's on the money right now. I think it's, I think it's particularly unlucky to present with a highly fatal manifestation of a rare disease and present atypically in, right. into a hospital where, where people are unlikely to really know their way around scleroderma renal crisis even if the person came in with obvious scleroderma, um, everyone would be looking on up to date or, or reading a review, <laughs> a Janet Pope review article to try and figure out how to treat it. And this is like a backwards presentation that you know you derived the the end product just from the ANA, um, uh, which is really fascinating. Okay, so <laughs> so back to you, back to you, you two. Um, what happens next in her care? This is Dania. At that point, nephrology felt that her presentation is consistent with TMA, um, specifically lexicon due to an underlying autoimmune disease. It's scleroderma renal crisis, less likely antiphospholipid. Um, rheumatology felt that 
Although she does have like features of scleroderma, like with the Reyna, the capillaroscopy findings, that pleural effusions are like large enough to be symptomatic where atypical, um, although it has been reported in the literature, albeit with low prevalence, uh, but it might represent like an overlap syndrome. So um, nephrology stopped, uh, discontinued like prednisone, started her on captopril. Um, rheumatology team at the time um, like requested further investigations, including um, mitogen panel. And um, we had like one, one excellent um, internal medicine resident at the team. His name is Alec. And he did some like review about like pleural effusions and scleroderma. And so some case reports mentioning like elevated CA125 in those patients, like in the serum as well as in the pleural fluid. So we also asked for those to be sent out of curiosity. And sure enough, um, both of these samples came back elevated from the serum at a level of 100 with a normal value below 32 and from the pleura with a level of 330. Nephrology also did the kidney biopsy and the kidney biopsy came back showing um, acute and chronic TMA. Um, her mitog- I'm just yeah. going to make one quick point because the listeners are itching about this one, I think. Um, bizarrely, CA-125 is elevated, apparently, and for research purposes, um, I've heard some of the ILD docs like Dr. Toby Maher talk about it in research um, setting that interstitial lung disease can also raise CA-125, so it's nonspecific, so just everyone can hold that thought, we're not going to find our colon cancer today, necessarily, that it can be elevated. I didn't know about pleural effusion, but I know it can be an ILD I have no idea why. It's probably a non-specific thing that occurs. I don't know. Anyway, keep going. So, so that people can say, oh, it's not a clincher that there's cancer or something going on, even though I'm worried. Yeah. Her mitogen panel for scleroderma came back showing high positive NT-PMSCL 75 and medium positive PMSCL 100 with a weak positive RP-155 and RO-52. Antiphospholipid workup showed negative lupus anticoagulant, beta-2 glycoprotein, but she did have a positive cardiolipin IgG of 104. And then her echo showed small pericardial effusion. Um, it also showed mild to moderate pulmonary hypertension. We're, we're really playing the greatest hits of uh, scleroderma and, and overlap syndrome um, items here, right? And and just uh, harking back to like the one thing that I added to this conversation of like, oh, should we send antiphospholipids? No, we did it. And we got it back, and it's positive, and I feel I feel no different. I, I don't know, right? Like it, it changes exactly nothing. Which I, we had to send it and get it back for me to truly learn a lesson. Um, it's it's interesting, and I would still follow it. Like I would still I'd I'd repeat it three months later um, if we get the chance to. But um, that that really hasn't changed much. But it's interesting, Daniel, because if I said, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to do a biopsy, I think they did it when her blood pressure is more controlled. We're not sure what the uh, uh, what the creatinine is doing right now. But if she had a whole bunch of microclots, you'd say, well, this is APS in a mm-hmm. uh, scleroderma, myositis, lupus overlap, right? So it would... Mm-hmm. So I don't mind now that it was done at all. So I, I agree. You go, well, I don't, we're not going to anticoagulate her right now. But I do hope the ACE was started and maintained. And I assume that the blood pressure when she came to um, VGH was normal because of the fact she was on an ACE. So I'll give everyone the benefit of the doubt and just assume <laughs> that whether it's true or not. I like that story. But I do want to know what her creatinine is doing. And the trace pericardial effusion, I nailed it on that too, because I don't know that I've ever seen renal crisis with other serous without a pericardial fusion. Give me that trivial pericardial fusion. The the pH could be, I hope she hasn't had PEs because it's like, why not? Why add one more thing with the um, your IgG anticardiolipin? You're more apt to clot if you're an elevated PTT, but IgG anticardiolipin um, is certainly of interest. The pulmonary hypertension could be an acute or she really could have pulmonary arterial hypertension. I don't know yet because her whole heart pump is 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 under strain because of the fact of the sudden blood pressure elevation that didn't sound that high to the listeners, but was certainly very relevant to the patient. I'm still looking for the cancer. The PMSCL um, does overlap for sure. 
It's too bad we couldn't get an RNA polymerase three because it'd probably be positive. And then, of course, the row 52 is she, we already knew, I think that she was SSA. So that's row. There's two kinds of rows they measure. I don't know what the difference is in this kind of situation. <laughs> so she's very antibody rich, but show me the tumor. I'm still waiting for the tumor. All right, back, back to you too. What, what happened next for her in the hospital? Uh, so yeah, her her creatinine continued to worsen despite optimizing like her captopril doses, and um, it reached a level of 454. She started to showing uh, she started to show hemolysis um, more with anemia. So her hemoglobin reached around 66. Uh, her platelet reached um, an eater of 16, and she did require um, one run of Plex. And she was eventually started on hemodialysis. Um, rheumatology team decided to start her on MMF initially, but she developed leukopenia while on it. So later on, she was switched to azathioprine. After a month, like she, so she was like transferred back to the island. And then she was eventually discharged. And she was able to get off hemodialysis after just one month of um, treatment. But she continued to have CKD of stage 4. Unfortunately, after her discharge, she still developed another recurrent pleural effusions two and three months after her discharge, and she was eventually switched from azathioprine to oral cyclo. You know, I I think it was, um, I believe it was Dr. Sindhu Johnson who told me about, um, you know, when when patients have scleroderma renal crisis, like do not give up on their renal function, like stick with it. They really can recover um, and come off dialysis. So it doesn't mean they're going to be on it forever. It is different than other types of renal disease. So don't give up. And and so just one month on dialysis is, is pretty impressive for how um, acutely unwell she was. Um, okay, Jan- Janet, what do you, what do you right, think? So she's right. having relapses. She's yeah. now on oral cyclo, which you would have, Right. So a couple things in, in renal impairment, we can indeed give um, the drugs that she got, such as azathioprine, MMF. We can give cyclophosphamide IV or oral with renal impairment. So there's some drugs that she wouldn't have received that you would um, be careful with. Like we wouldn't, we'd never give her in renal failure methotrexate, but we wouldn't have given her that anyway. So a couple things, Plex made sense. Platelets going so low is uncommon in renal crisis, so you kind of wonder that low hemoglobin, yes, indeed, can happen in renal crisis. Um, I would have wondered about with Plex, but not Plexing it off, because you can have Plex serially or continuously. I would have wondered about IVIG as those platelets fell, just worrying because I wouldn't have pulsed her with glucocorticoids now. The other Mm -hmm. thing is, so yes, once you've had renal crisis... Don't let anyone stop the ACE inhibitor. Don't give up for a year if they to to see if they can get off dialysis. She's going to end up back on dialysis someday if she lives long enough because she is like stage four CKD and because she really did do a number on them. But you know we'll we'll see what happens to her over time. We want to see what happens to the pulmonary hypertension, but I I don't know that um, our treatment will be sufficient because her immune system is so turned on and because I would be very reluctant to give any more glucocorticoids. So that's kind of like, I agree, immune suppression, watch her carefully, make a diagnosis of a whole bunch of diseases at once. That's totally fine. The weight loss, though, I am still looking for uh, the cancer. The pleural effusions, it is... I don't know why they can't just do like get rid of the pleural effusions. Just you know, pleurides properly. I don't know. It's usually not a big deal once you've done it three times, four times. It should that should be enough already. So because that's going to make her more short of breath. I want to know what's happening to the pulmonary hypertension now. Staying with a trivial pericardial effusion is not so rare after renal crisis, and usually the hemoglobin eventually does come up because there still can be low level hemolysis for quite a while, but it's usually you know some shearing that's far less and and it's recovering because she did get off dialysis so you know at this point it's like the good news is she's somewhat better the bad news is that um there there's something might be causing this that we would treat otherwise you'd think now we must be though somewhere into four to six months from the very onset maybe so usually if you're perineoplastic rapidly progressive they don't last a year they're often still losing weight and kind of 
like dying before your very eyes. So maybe she isn't perineoplastic, but it's still in my mind. So how'd she tolerate the cyclophosphamide? What was her clinical course after switching? So, yeah, after she received the one run of plaques, she actually, like, her platelet count did improve. And, like, within a week, her platelet count um, came up to 109. After she was switched to oral cyclo, it, it wasn't clear from the note, because she was at the time, this time, like, in the islands, and it wasn't clear from the notes how much of oral cyclo she received initially. But later on... It seems that it has been tapered and she was on 25 milligram per day, so a small dose. Since she has been switched, she did not uh, develop any further episodes of pleural effusions. But it's just like worth to mention, at the, t- at the same time, she was also managed with diuretics, including Lasix and Spironolactone. And for the past four months, she has been tapered off cyclophosphamide completely and she's off all immune suppressant. She hadn't had any further episodes until now. So Janet, what would your approach have been there? Would you taper off cyclophosphamide altogether? Or would you have moved on to a maintenance agent, even perhaps one that um, it, maybe she flared through in the past something um, to keep her in check? Right. In addition to Plaquenil, which you had said, you had said that initially. Yeah. So a couple of things. First of all, she's gotten excellent care, by the way, like every they're identifying things and acting on it, both um, on the island in which she was uh, shipped to Vancouver and then returned. So I, I must commend everybody in the involvement of her care and the very smart uh, resident that hopefully will want to do room, um, Alec or Alex. The resident. <laughs> so just a plug in for for that one, too. So um, I don't know why you would get the cyclo off. We're not worried about long term bladder toxicity. Um, I, I think she has a, she's antibody rich. She has features of many areas of CTD and the renal crisis, if it recurs, is going to kill her. And you would say, well, why do we think that cyclophosphamide will help prevent renal crisis? I'm thinking cyclophosphamide will help prevent ongoing manifestations of the CTD, the antibody rich, the lots of overlap going on. And um, so I would have, I would have no worries doing, uh, say, 50 or 100 milligrams a day, I don't mind 25 long term, either if her counts are tolerating all these, whatever dose you want to make, um, go, but that's too early, like we all think of, if you had lupus activity, if you had a rapidly progressive scleroderma patient enough to fry your kidneys, at least transiently, we think of those people that multi-organ things going on, the CK had been up, that we, we I wouldn't personally stop if it was tolerated, stop the cycle for a long time. I don't care if you give receptor or not. I'm sort of an anti-scepter person for um, many conditions, uh, unless if they're on high-dose prednisone and she's not on any so I, I'd say the cyclo stopping it worries me a bit. How, when you say you'd, you'd keep it on long term, what what time frame are you talking about? Right. So again, this is a data free zone, but we tend to think, you know, just even think of induction and remission of anything like it, she doesn't have. But if someone has ILD, you're going to do induction often for six to 12 months. Lupus nephritis, you're going to do induction at least for a long period of time. And then like a three grams of, of um, MMF and then maintenance after maybe, you know, six or 12 months. If we're going to do induction for GPA, all these things she doesn't have, we tend to think, you know, you got to do treatment for a while, then you can taper, but not right off for a year or two after. So I would have done cyclo if well tolerated, which it was, and she was doing a lot better. I'm not worried about risk versus potential benefits. So I would have done cyclophosphamide or whatever dose you chose for probably a year, then cut the dose in half. So if I had her on 50 or 100, cut it down for another six months. And then you say, if I stop now and you're really good, here's your, you're kind of coaching them. They're going to keep following their blood pressure. Not that cyclo is preventing renal crisis. The um, ACE is treating it and we don't want to stop the ACE now. But because she has potential for a lot of organs to take off, the serositis, um, the myopathy or myositis, or maybe it was a cardiomyopathy, they're the things that can also be bad news bears, so to speak. So that's where I'd be. And then the fact that she's still alive nine months out, maybe this isn't perineoplastic. The CA-125, we talked about that as being you know, it's not specific for cancer. So mm-hmm. they're, they're the things I'd be thinking about now, but I, I think her care was actually quite paramountly great. All right. 
any any other turns in the story? Yeah, I, I think just like one thing to mention, the reason why her cyclophosphamide was like quickly tapered off is um, she was evaluated by different respirologists. And um, initially, like um, they agreed that her pleural effusions are related to an underlying autoimmune disease. But then a different respirologist felt that it's actually unlikely to be related to her CTD, um, given multiple things like low cell count from pleurofluid, lack of lymphocyte predominance, um, and then um, suggested just like treating her with um, diuretics. And that's the thought when her cyclo uh, was decided to be like quickly tapered off. So in other words, they pretended it was a transidate now, even though it was an exudate three times Yeah. before. Yeah, right? so like all, um, like three, four times all the, um, it was borderline like exudative. So like her total protein fluid to serum was like more than 0.55 or more than like borderline above that cutoff, but it was still exudative. Um, but the last one that she developed was transitive. I, I feel like to a degree, we, like this may be a situation where like pretest probability is maybe like the way I would think about it what are the chances that these pleural effusions are not kind of a manifestation of the disease rather than, I guess the pitch here is that they're actually essentially a transitative effusion all along. Like this is, it's because of pressures or heart failure, or maybe even the pulmonary hypertension, like that's really what's causing the, the effusions here, as opposed to it, it's just one of the many evolving manifestations of this person's disease. Um, as it was taking off, so that was that was just kind of part of it. I'm I'm inclined to lean more towards that it is part of the disease, and the reason that it's doing better is the medications, the immune suppression. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure. I I politely disagree with with that take, um, but I, I don't know, Janet. Where where, where do you right think? right? But even if you said okay, she actually because you shouldn't like I know you can have the whatever it's called the left ventricle is normal but you still get heart failure people that uh, that those people with the little um, short form thing. I, I agree that even like, so well, the other way to look at it is, okay, say the pleural effusions that kept recurring are from heart failure and they're giving her two diuretics and they're watching her K anyway, because one will raise it, one will lower it. She has renal failure class four. So we don't want her getting hyperkalemic, but say you even would stop the spironolactone. Okay. I'll buy that there's heart failure. Maybe I have no clue, but I'll just buy it like um, to indulge our, our, um, our thinking. She needs cyclo in my opinion, because she had elevated CK she does have systemic sclerosis enough to have a, a life-threatening manifestation that, and she really has a lot of SLE features. I think she needs treatment and whether somebody said, okay, instead of cyclo, we go back to MMF or we go to azathioprine or we do hydroxychloroquine and low-dose aza because of counts dropping and things like that. I think it's too early to stop because the recurrence of stuff if she gets cardiac involvement with that CK, if it's really not from muscle, that the recurrence is going to kill her. So mm -hmm. that's why I do it. So even if you say, well, it wasn't that much of an exudate, so maybe it was a little bit of lupus stuff, plus now some heart failure, sure, whatever. But I think we have enough organ manifestations that, you know, when, when her immune system wakes up, which maybe it will, maybe it won't, we, we might not be able to put it in check. I think these are maybe some of the cases where, you know, every specialist is a specialist on their particular organ, but this is definitely the sort of case where the quarterback is 100% the rheumatologist. And so take away any single manifestation. And I think many people would still say this person needs cyclo, just like Dr. Pope is saying. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's kind of perhaps the rheumatologist's um, call as to whether cyclo is stopped and not the nephrologists or the respirologists or the cardiologists individually. Um, okay, so so she's not on anything other than maybe her blood pressure medications. Um, and, and so does that kind of bring us up to present day? Yeah. So she, like, since stopping, because I mentioned, like, her cyclo for the past three months, she hadn't had any recurrence of pleural effusions. She continued to do well, like um, she still has CKD stage four, uh, but otherwise like her blood counts are all back to normal, except for a lymphopenia of 0 0.3. 
Wow. Yeah. So Janet, you are still going to keep looking for that malignancy even in the the months to come? For a while, but I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to, uh, you know, flog it, but just um, she did start with weight loss. She didn't have dysphagia. I mean, weight loss is often a sign that they're hot tamales, meaning active disease of some of these autoimmune things, but hot tamale or not, she didn't, you know, people kind of didn't say, well, she's got a skin score of 30 or anything like that. So just, just, you know, be, be aware that we have to be very vigilant on blood pressure, vigilant on the creatinine and her potassium on, we don't want to dry her out because then you'll just give her ATN, which will um, push her back into dialysis and just keep thinking, let's monitor what the weight does. Um, And I really don't like these people that are antibody rich because you're always changing it around. Is it this? Is it that? Is it some of this? And people's bodies don't know to read textbooks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right they don't they don't right. have to be linear into one thing um <laughs> that's right but a very very great learning uh, case um i would certainly have her be doing home blood pressure monitoring and i would never stop race never is a strong word but she needs an ace the rest of her life which she's still on yeah yes this, this is uh, an excellent case and as i say i think she had really good treatment but i would be very tempted to put stuff back on and you can use hydroxychloroquine if you want, but it does work for serocytes. But since that's magically disappeared between diuretics, good luck, uh, Plax, Cyclo, for all those reasons, maybe. And she the, should the Plaquenil. keep her off the pred, yeah. not on pred, but I'd be very reluctant to restart, which is another reason why I'd want background therapy. But a really, really great case. And it brings up a lot of things that in the end, it's um, we're usually true to the physical exam features that help to at least clinch a phenotype, even though it's an evolution, to clinch the phenotype for us. I also really like the way that you kind of use the, you, you know, your knowledge of the natural history to predict where you are going to find things and the direction the case will go. And I think kind of having that foresight about um, cases is really kind of helpful in terms of, uh, like, I, I think that's kind of the master level uh, clinician experience. And uh, I think I certainly, I, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still build, building towards that. I'm not there yet. Um, Dania and Angela, any other thoughts before we close out today? Thank you both so much for all your thoughts. And uh, it's great to hear from a world-class expert like yourself, Dr. Pope on scleroderma and just hearing how you predicted all the manifestations so accurately. So hopefully we'll develop that foresight as well in, in a few decades <laughs> to come. But <laughs> Right. And a prediction, you can always be wrong, right? You're looking for things and that's where, you know, the you, a, a pericardial effusion would help, the dilated capillaries, the renos, all those things would help. But that just because you think it, people, I'm always surprised every day. People can surprise us. So we can predict, but we have to be open-minded. And I am wrong many, many a time as well. Because again, uh, natural history of things don't always read the textbook either. So wonderful case. You two presented excellently kudos to the uh, the young keen resident that was on the service as well and daniel you're always right on the money you're you're you're, <laughs> you're logical thinking you're you're going the same direction i'm going absolutely we just have to give you one or two gray hairs and then it's even <laughs> even easier just got a haircut and i think they're starting to come in no not at all thank all right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank, thanks to everyone so much for, for doing this case. And uh, we will definitely, Janet, get you back for another case uh, sooner rather than later. And thanks to Danya and Angela. Thank you. thank you. That's it for this episode of Around the Room. For questions, comments, and future episode ideas, email us at info at room.ca or tag our Twitter account with your question at room. Around the Room is produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, and Aaron Stewart. We would like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for all their hard work. And of course, an extra special thanks to Drs. Dania Al-Nujaidi and Angela Hu, and of course, Dr. Janet Pope. Our theme music was composed by Aaron Fontwell. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and write a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. It helps people find these interviews. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Until next time, I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening.